0: Luke 3 beginning in verse 1 In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God Came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough. Places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able, able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is God's word. Now, we continue our Advent series this morning of just three sermons on the life and ministry of John the Baptist. We looked at John's birth last week and talked about his identity in Christ, talked about our identity in Christ. Today, we're going to look at his life and his ministry in particular. Just as his identity was defined by his relationship with Christ, so was his whole life. His whole ministry was defined and shaped by his relationship with Jesus. So let's look at our text under three headings. One, the word in the wilderness. And this is in verses 1 and 2. Two, the voice in the wilderness, verses 3 through 14. And this is the ministry of John as he prepares the way for the Lord. And finally, three, we'll look at the Lord in the wilderness, verses 15 Through 22. So the word in the wilderness, the voice in the wilderness, and the Lord in the wilderness. Now, as you read this, um, and as I struggle to pronounce some of these names, a fair question is why did Luke include all these historical details of places and rulers? Why was it important to include, it seems like everybody he could think of in this passage? We have the emperor tiberius caesar we have the governor pilate we have the local kings herod philip lysanias and then we have the high priests in jerusalem annas and caiaphas why did he do that well one reason i think is because he wants us to see that the gospel is rooted in history this isn't just a spiritual truth you can accept or reject and it really doesn't matter if christ lived died and rose again Luke is telling us, and throughout his gospel and throughout the book of Acts, which he also wrote, he gives us a lot of historical detail to show us that our faith, Christianity, is a historical faith. It's rooted in specific events that really took place. It's really important not to see Christianity as just a way to think about life or a way to live life, but these things happened, and because they happened, because Jesus really was born, because he really lived, because he really died... And because he really rose again, which also means he's really coming again, all these things matter to us because they happened. And so you can reject it, but you're rejecting something that is true, something that happened, and then you have to live with the consequences. I think that's one reason why Luke is so careful to include all these details. It's almost like he's, he's a reporter. He's, he's making an account, and he wants us to be accurate and historical. He wants us to go back and check the records outside of Scripture and say, Was there a Caesar Tiberius? Yes, there was. Was there a Herod? There was. And so we can check it against history. But I think another reason why he's listing all these people and all these places in the beginning of the account of John the Baptist's ministry is to show us that they lived in the political and religious wilderness. It wasn't just that John the Baptist was in the wilderness, but the whole people of God were in the wilderness, So if you look at these names, all these names are marked by particular wickedness. The land of promise at the time of John the Baptist was occupied and ruled by a pagan power, by Rome. That's why you have the emperor, Emperor Tiberius, mentioned here. It was administered by corrupt, incompetent, power-hungry local kings. You got Herod and Lysanias and Philip. And then the religious leaders in Jerusalem were no better. Caiaphas was the official high priest during that time. However, Annas is also mentioned. Annas is his father-in-law. Annas is still pulling the strings, even though Caiaphas is the official priest. And we know from many other accounts of just how corrupt the priesthood became how political the priesthood became. They were just trying to maintain order so they can benefit themselves from Roman rule. This is not the last time we see these names in the Gospels. They come up again. Of course, Herod will imprison and behead John the Baptist. Caiaphas and Annas will conspire to put Jesus to death, and Pilate will pronounce the death sentence. The point Luke is making right from the very beginning, before John begins his ministry of proclamation and preparation for the coming of Jesus, is that the Word of God came at a time of political oppression and religious decline. John was not the only one in the wilderness, the whole people of God were in the wilderness. The whole people of God seemed, seemed to have been lost in the wilderness. And by the way, until now, God had not spoken for over 400 years. The last prophetic utterance was through the prophet Malachi. So we have over 400 years of silence, over 400 years of wilderness. And the people are frustrated, discouraged, disappointed, disillusioned, waiting for God to do something. This is why they're flocking to John the Baptist, because God is finally speaking to his people. And the good news is being preached now in Judea. I mean, this is is a huge shift in what's happening in these people's lives. At one of the lowest points in Jewish history, at a time of political disillusionment, religious confusion, and moral decline, the Word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, In the wilderness. God spoke to His people. He did not leave them without hope, but He spoke to them. God restored hope to His people once again as He had done many times before and as He's doing today with us. God raised a new prophet. Now John is not just another prophet. He is the last prophet. The last prophet before Jesus comes, before the Messiah comes. And he comes to prepare the way for the Messiah to come. Now you see, John's ministry was not developed or defined by him. There was no vision casting seminars. There were no groups getting together saying, well, how do we we frame this ministry of this last prophet? The word of God came to him. You see, God simply spoke to him, and he gave him a message, and he gave him a ministry. And John is a great example of a Christian who simply listens to God and does what God calls us to do. Isn't that that the Christian life? We start with our identity in Christ as we did last Sunday. We are who God says we are, but then we do what God says we should do. We hear his word, we accept it with joy as good news to us. We rejoice that God speaks to us. And as we hear his word, then we go and we do it. We obey. For John, it meant preaching in the wilderness and calling people to repentance. What does it mean to you? What is God saying to you? What is the revelation of God that's coming to you? I think there's great encouragement for us in this text today. Many of us are disillusioned with corrupt, power-hungry, incompetent leaders. Many of us are deeply discouraged at the rapid moral decline we have witnessed. Rapid moral decline. I mean, this is unusual. Many of us are greatly concerned with the state of the evangelical church and the religious life of God's people today. On many days, it feels like we're in the wilderness. It feels like we're lost. But this passage teaches us that it is not hopeless. It teaches us that the Word of God comes to the wilderness And it brings hope to the discouraged and the disillusioned and the despairing. If you are in that place this morning, as many of us are, disillusioned, discouraged, despairing, frustrated, confused, you're in the wilderness, God can speak to you today. I hope that that's one of the reasons why you come to church, why you watch online, that you hope that God would speak to you in your wilderness. Now, of course, we know that it's not like it was in the days of John the Baptist. We know that Jesus has come, the gospel has been preached. We have the word of God, we have the gospel. And so our hope is, where it always is, in the Word of God, in the gospel itself. Let the gospel of Christ, this wonderful message of hope and grace and forgiveness, encourage you today. Let it inspire you in whatever wilderness you are wandering. Turn to the gospel today for hope. When we see John receiving the word of God in the wilderness after 400 years of silence, after all the confusion that God's people are dealing with, all the frustration, all the disillusionment, what we see is that God speaks and his eternal word enters into our temporal situations. One of the wonderful things about Christianity is the idea, the truth, the fact that God enters our very specific circumstances, our history, our lives, and the eternal enters into the temporal. And so because we have His Word, because we, we have the gospel that was preached to us, that is being preached to us by the Holy Spirit, every time you open the Scriptures, every time you open your heart before God, because of that, there's always hope for God's people. Because we're dealing with the eternal that's come into the temporal. We're not just dealing with the temporal things. We're not just dealing with politics. We're not just dealing with the moral decline. We're not just dealing with the confusion and the incompetence of leaders. We're not just dealing with that. We are dealing with that, but we're also dealing with the eternal God entering that. Speaking to that. Encouraging His people in that. Inspiring us to change This is radically different from anything else, any other worldview. So, if you are in the wilderness, there is a Word of God for you today. God can speak to you, and His Word changes everything. That's the Word that came in the wilderness. Now, let's look at John, who received that Word, and then he became a voice for God, he became a voice in the wilderness. Now we find his job description in verses 4, 5, and 6. This is a passage from Isaiah that defined how he lived and what he did. He received the word, he absorbed it, and now it affected his life. It shaped his life. He did what God told him to do. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John was called specifically to prepare the way of the Lord, the way of the Messiah, the way of Jesus. He was supposed to remove the obstacles in the way of Jesus. Now the imagery from Isaiah It's here of rough terrain being leveled, being smoothed out to make it easier and faster to travel on it. John's ministry was a ministry of preparation. And he fulfilled it by proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I want you to see the pattern here. He was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was not forgiving sins, but he was preparing the people for the forgiveness of sins that was to come through Christ. So his work of preparation was proclaiming repentance, calling people to repentance as symbolized in the baptism. They would go into the water, and that was a physical manifestation of their repentant hearts and their changed lives. I want to take a few minutes to consider repentance. What is it? What is repentance? It is turning from sin. It is changing one's view of God and and yourself. It is waking up to the reality of the coming judgment. It is an internal and external change. Change of heart, and it's a change of life. Is repentance necessary for salvation? John says yes. John says yes. He's preaching repentance, symbolized in baptism, so that people could receive forgiveness of sins. That's the smoothing out. That's the leveling of the way of the Lord. He's preparing people by calling them to repentance. Now, salvation is all by grace. Nobody's sins are forgiven because we have begged God in a special way for forgiveness, or because we have brought something to the table and said, God, since I did this, now you need to forgive me. It's all by grace. God forgives because He is forgiving. God loves because He is loving. We do not merit or deserve or earn it in any way. But at the same time, it is impossible for a person to accept God's gift of forgiveness, of salvation if they insist on holding on to their sins. This is the biblical teaching. While repentance in itself is not enough for salvation, you can repent and not be saved. It is absolutely necessary. Listen to J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop speaking to us from the 1800s. He says, We must carefully remember That without repentance, no soul was ever yet saved. We must know our sins, mourn over them, forsake them, abhor them, or else we shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. There is nothing meritorious in this. It forms no part whatever of the price of our redemption. Our salvation is all of grace from first to last. But the great fact still remains that saved souls are always penitent souls and that saving faith in Christ and true repentance toward God are never found asunder. This is a mighty truth and one that ought never to be forgotten. Like John the Baptist, J.C. Ryle says repentance belongs with salvation. It doesn't cause salvation It is not salvation itself, but it belongs with it. You can't separate the two. Now, I'm afraid that this mighty truth, as Ryle calls it, has been forgotten in some parts of the evangelical church in recent times. Think about it. To receive the forgiveness of sins, surely one must think sin is a problem. That sin leads to condemnation and judgment. That sin is an awful thing that needs to be dealt with. How sincere is a person's acceptance of Christ's forgiveness if they don't think sin is a big deal? Why then be forgiven? Why then rely on Christ to come and change you and take your guilt away if you don't feel guilty? if you don't think there's judgment, if you don't think there's hell, if you don't think that God is angry with you, if you don't think there's a problem in the way you live, in the way you feel, in the way you think, in the way you see God, in the way you see yourself, why ask for forgiveness? Why is the gospel good news at all? Richard Niebuhr described certain Christians this way he was writing in 1937 it applies to us today as well he described that certain Christians believed that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross it's a famous quote by Niebuhr and one that I think applies to many churches today Many Christians today who don't think God has wrath, who don't think men have sin, who don't think there's a kingdom with judgment, and they don't think ultimately that the cross really matters. The gospel is not an addition to our lives. It has become an addition to our lives in many churches and in many pulpits. We simply tell people to improve their lives by adding something to them, by maybe adding a Christmas message of hope, by maybe adding some sort of feeling that God somewhere loves me, that God accepts me as I am, that there is such a thing as grace. And so we preach that, and we say, you must add Jesus to your life because your life is lacking in some way. There's something missing, so add Jesus, as much Jesus as you need, as much Jesus as you want, Today, But that is not the gospel. The gospel, at its essence, is not an addition, but it's a replacement. To become a Christian is to replace your pursuit of sin with your pursuit of Christ. Your slavery to sin with your slavery to Christ. Your joy in sin with your joy in Christ. I'm using biblical language. I'm alluding to many passages in the Bible that speak of that transformation of moving away from something and moving towards something, that's repentance. It has to include a negation of something. It has to include a rejection of something, and then a replacement of that with Christ Himself. This is what happens at every real, genuine conversion. Something is rejected and something is accepted. There is a substitution, there is a replacement that happens. And yes, of course, it happens through the supernatural and gracious work of the Holy Spirit. It cannot happen any other way. And it is all by grace, but it must include repentance. This was John's message. He's making the road even and smooth for Jesus by putting everyone on the same level before God. Repentance is this great equalizer. People with high views of themselves are brought low by repentance. People with low views of themselves are lifted up by repentance. Mountains and hills are made low, and valleys are filled by repentance. Now, there are two categories of people here, and those are the two, those, I think, the only two categories of people who reject the gospel. There are those who think they really don't need it because they're doing okay. For these people, the part of the gospel that is about judgment, that is about hell, that is about sin, is offensive and off putting to them. That's one group. The other group are those who think that they can't possibly be forgiven because they are doing so badly. For these people, the part of the gospel that is about the free gift of forgiveness sounds unbelievable, too good to be true. They feel like something else had to be done here. John's message of repentance removes the obstacles for both groups. And I'll show you in this text how he's dealing with each group differently. Now, you are probably in one of those groups. I am in one of those groups. And for us to embrace the gospel, whether for the first time at conversion or to continue believe in the gospel, we must continue to repent. And we must continue to see ourselves differently. We're, when we're in Christ, we're in a third group. We're not in any one of those, either one of those other groups. We have to, be, we have to break out of that through repentance and embrace the gospel. Now look at John addressing the first group the ones that think they're too good for the gospel, in verses 7, 8, and 9. Now, if you remember Matthew's account of the same, same conversation, he actually specifies that John is talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees when he says, and this is verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. What an opening to a sermon. You brood of vipers. This is a man shaped by the revelation of God. He does what God tells him to do. He speaks what God tells him to speak. He sees people coming to him that are just trying to add this baptism to the resume, add listening to John the Baptist, the famed prophet to the resume. And he tells them, you brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? He's basically saying, who told you you could avoid God's wrath by simply coming here? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Your repentance has to be real. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. saying, you can't trust your lineage, whether it's physical or spiritual. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He doesn't want the Pharisees and Sadducees to to feel even better about themselves by going through the motions of his baptism. Their religious resumes are already impressive, at least in their eyes. And so he preaches repentance to the religious. They have to repent from whatever they think commends them to God. They need to repent of trusting in their Abrahamic lineage, in their observance of the law, in their reputations, in their social standing. Whatever they think makes them better than everybody else, makes them more acceptable to God, they have to give that up. That's repentance for the religious person. It's repenting of self-righteousness. It's repenting of saying, I have something to offer to God. He must love me because of who I am, what I've done, what I'm doing, how disciplined I am, how religious I am, how moral I am, how politically astute I am. And John says no. We're going to take these hills, we're going to take these mountains, and we're going to lower them. We're going to level them so everybody's on the same ground, on the same level. He says, you have to repent. Now, did you know that the whole notion of baptism was offensive to a good religious Jew of that day? Baptism during the time of John was meant for Gentiles, the Gentile proselytes that came into the faith They heard the Jewish scriptures being read, maybe in a synagogue. Maybe their neighbor shared the Hebrew Bible with them. They heard about this message of a God who saves his people from slavery out of Egypt, who promises a Messiah. And so they would go, and they would ask to become a Jew, to become an observant Jew, to become a religious person. And they would be baptized, and that pagan filth would be washed away so they could become a good Jew. This is how it was practiced. And John says to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, to the Jews, to people from Jerusalem, to good, law-abiding, religious, ritual-following Jews, says, you have to be baptized. You have to wash the pagan filth off of you. It's scandalous. This message is so different the people are flocking to hear this. They'd never heard this before. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had their rules, and if you obeyed them, you were okay with God. But John says everybody has to be on the same level. One commentator says, the sting in John's practice was that he applied to Jews the ceremony they regarded as suitable for unclean Gentiles. John denounces those who expected that in the judgment God would deal harshly with Gentile sinners, but that the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, would be safe. He removes this fancied security. The gospel has to remove whatever fancied security you have. Whatever you're trusting, whatever you think commends you before God, it has to be removed by repentance. You have to repent of that not just not to think about that, but repent of that and say, I have nothing to offer to God. For all my religious observance, for all my family heritage, maybe you come from a family of pastors and missionaries and heroes and martyrs. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You have to repent of that. You have to say, I don't have anything to bring. Maybe you feel you come from a Christian culture, a Christian country. Maybe you brought up a certain way. And you know the scriptures because they were taught to you. And you know the prayers because you prayed them. It doesn't matter. Because before God, everybody has to repent and everybody has to go on the same level. Now, look at how he addresses the other group, the second group, those who think they are too bad for the gospel. Now, if you look at verses 10 and following, you'll find John talking to tax collectors and soldiers. Now, The fact that he's even talking to them is scandalous. That he's welcoming them, that he's preaching to them. These are the people, and these soldiers, by the way, are probably soldiers who help the tax collectors collect the taxes for Rome. So these are Jews who've abandoned their nation, who have betrayed their nation. And now they're collecting taxes for the oppressors, for the occupiers. You're supposed to be waiting for the Jewish king to rule in Jerusalem and What are you doing? You're robbing your people to give money to the oppressive force of Rome, to build up their army so they can oppress you more. These are people who were religious outsiders, moral outsiders. And by the way, they not only collected taxes for Rome, they collected money for themselves. And the soldiers participated in that. They could extort more money than was owed. And these groups lived pretty good lives. But John is preaching to them. And he tells them that they too can repent and prepare for the coming of Jesus because they're not too far gone either. It's amazing news. Yes, to the Pharisee and the Sadducee saying, you repent of your self-righteousness, but to the tax collector and soldier, repent of your unrighteousness. Because even that can't stop God from saving you. Even though you have rejected your whole culture, religion, morality, everything, you gave all that up for what? For greed, for power. He says, you too can be forgiven. You too can repent. And repent in a real way. Repent in the way that's going to affect your job, that's going to affect your life. So when they asked him, what should we do? He says, well, don't collect any more than you're supposed to collect. Be fair. Soldiers, don't extort money that is not owed you. Don't oppress your people. That's real repentance, not just in the heart, but in life. They have to apply this repentance in the real gray areas of life, like taxes and money and power. And he tells all of them, if you have more than you have, you give it to somebody. You have two changes of clothing. You give it to somebody who doesn't have any. You have food, you give it to people. That's that's the sign of repentance. They've repented from their unrighteousness. They're no longer living for themselves, trying to get as much as they can for themselves. Now they're giving to others. The two categories, those who are too good for the gospel and those who think they are too bad for the gospel. Both are leveled by repentance. Are you too good to be forgiven? Or too bad to be forgiven? The gospel is for both. And it is repentance that prepares us for Jesus. Now, if you think you are too good, you need to see and repent of trusting in your goodness. You, too, are under judgment of God because you, too, are a sinner in God's eyes. Your religious observance, your Christian lineage, your belonging to a Christian culture will not, cannot save you. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. And God knows the tree. He knows your heart. He knows where your faith is. He knows whether you're trusting in your goodness. If you think you are too bad, you need to see and repent of your badness, of your unrighteousness. There is hope for you. It's not too late for you. Sometimes I I meet people who come to church, and usually it's just once, and there's great desperation there and you preach the gospel to them, and you talk to them, and you counsel them, and you tell them, there is hope for you. There's nobody that's too wicked, too broken, too evil to receive forgiveness of sins from Christ and to receive hope and healing in their lives. And and you see them questioning that and wrestling with that and, and saying, I don't know if I can believe that. There's too much brokenness in my life. There's too much wickedness in my heart. Even Jesus can't save me. And they drift away. I've seen so many people come and go. Come but never attach to the gospel. Never repent from their unrighteousness. Never see their sin in light of the gospel itself. Because there is nothing to be done but Jesus forgiven you. Nobody is too far gone. There's hope for everybody. If you're, if you're here, if you're listening, if you're here today in person and, and you're thinking, God can't possibly save me. Oh, yes, he can. And if you stick around this church, you will hear stories. There are several of us here that were exactly where you are today, wrestling with exactly the same problem. Can God forgive me? Can he really save me? And he did. And he is saving many people today. People who are very broken, who are very wicked, and yet his grace covers even that. Now, John's popularity and power in preaching raised an important question among his followers. People are asking, might he be the Messiah? Might he be the Christ? Might he be that promised king who will come and rule and bring forgiveness for sins, real forgiveness? and unite his people, and heal his people, and establish a kingdom. There'll be real hope, hope realized now. They're asking, might John be the Christ? Now there were many people during that time that would come and preach, and people would say, maybe he is the Christ, only to be disappointed. So they're asking John. Listen to how John himself answers that question. There's no ambiguity, There's no, he's very clear, he knows who he is. He's not claiming to be the Christ. John answered them, verse 16, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit on fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And the rabbis of the day taught that a disciple of a rabbi would do whatever a slave does to serve his rabbi, except for untying of the sandal strap. It's considered to be too low for the disciple, too low even for any Hebrew slave. You would have to be a special kind of slave, a special lowest slave to do that kind of work. John, however, says, I am unworthy to even do that. If you compare me and you compare Christ, this is where I am. I I can't even call myself a disciple. I can't even call myself a slave. We are so different. There's such a great difference between what I I am saying, I am preaching, I am doing, and what Christ will do when he comes. John could call people to repentance from sin but he could not offer forgiveness of sin. He couldn't do that, and he didn't do that. He could warn about the judgment to come, but he couldn't save anybody from that judgment. John could put you under water, but he could never put you under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Only God, only the Messiah, only the Christ could give life. John could prepare the way, but Jesus is the way. And so John says, when the Messiah comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Only the Messiah will have the power, the authority to save and to judge. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is conversion, regeneration, salvation. It's being brought into the life of God, saved from death, saved from judgment. But the baptism of fire is judgment, it's hell. It's unquenchable fire. It's eternal punishment in hell. And John is saying, I'm preaching about that. I'm pointing to that. I'm warning you about that. But only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can save, and only Jesus can judge. Only Jesus can welcome you into his kingdom, and only Jesus can exclude you from his kingdom. And now we get to the final portion of our passage, and we ask, how can Jesus do that? How can Jesus the Messiah forgive our sins? How can Jesus the Messiah judge somebody who is unrepentant? How can Jesus the Messiah save us from the judgment to come? And the answer is, in our text, it's in his baptism. Now look at verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, so all these people who are coming to John, they're repenting, he's baptizing them, he's preparing them for the coming of Jesus, but here comes Jesus. And when Jesus also had been baptized, Jesus became baptized. He got baptized under John's ministry. He came into the water. John baptized him. And when he was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Lord himself went into the wilderness and was baptized by John. I mean, this is strange, isn't it? John was preaching repentance, baptism of repentance, repentance from sin, but Jesus didn't need to repent of anything. He wasn't sinful. There were no sin, self-righteous or unrighteous sin that needed repenting. There's no sin in him, no darkness in him, no dirt in him to be washed off. John was preparing the people for the coming of the Messiah, but Jesus is the Messiah. Why was he baptized in the Jordan? Now remember, when I said that the gospel is about replacement and not addition. We replace our sin with Christ, our obedience to sin with our obedience to Christ, our joy in sin with our joy in Christ. Now this substitution this conversion, this salvation, can only happen because of another substitution that we see in the baptism of Jesus. The reason Jesus was baptized is so he could come into our place before God. He was baptized in our place, instead of us. He, the sinless God, accepted the baptism of repentance in place of the sinner's. This is how deeply Jesus identified with us sinners, that he even went through the baptism. Now, sinners go through baptism. Those who repent of their sin, those who seek forgiveness, those who want a different life go through baptism. And Jesus says, because I love you, because I want to save you, I will go through that in your place. I will go through it for you. He took our sins on himself, symbolically in the water in the Jordan, in the wilderness, but really and actually on the cross outside of Jerusalem. The reason Jesus can offer forgiveness of sins and salvation from hell is because he went to hell for our sins, he suffered for our sins, he died for our sins. He took God's wrath, God's judgment, God's hell for us. He not only went under water, he went under the judgment of God, the judgment on the self-righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus can offer life because he went through death for us. When Jesus came out of the water, an amazing thing happened. The Spirit came down on him like a dove, And a voice from heaven, the Father's voice, said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. As Jesus identified with us in our sins, this is so important to see the sequence. Jesus comes into the water saying, I will go into the water in place of the dirty, in place of the sinful, just like I will go on the cross in place of the sinners. And as he comes out of the water, the Father says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased and the Spirit comes on him with approval, with validation, with affirmation, with power. And because Jesus took what was ours in the water and more importantly on the cross, we are now given what is his. Brothers and sisters, this is the most important thing I could probably ever say to you. These words... Spoken over the water as Jesus is coming out of the baptism. If you are in Christ, these are the words that are true of you. This is an incredible truth. This is why the gospel is so powerful. Because when you connect with this, when you get attached to these kinds of proclamations of God, it changes who you are. It changes what you do. It changes how you feel. It changes what you think about when you have nothing to think about. These words, you are my beloved child. I am well pleased with you. Are spoken of you if you are in Christ. He already went into the water for you. He already died on the cross for you. And as he rose from the dead, as he came out of the water, God speaks to him. God speaks over him but because you're in Him, God speaks about you and God speaks over you. You are His beloved children. He is well pleased with you and the Holy Spirit comes on you because you're in Christ. Whatever was yours, your self-righteousness, your unrighteousness, Jesus took it on Himself and He put it in the water. He drowned it in the water and then He killed it on the cross. And when He came out, He now offers you a whole new life. Because He can. Because He's God. God can give life. God can give forgiveness. God can give healing and give hope to you. Today, in your wilderness, God can do that. And He does do that. So when you enter into Christ, now you stand in His place before God. And God looks at you, and He sees you in Christ, and He says, You are my beloved children. You are my babies, God says. And I love you, and I cannot be more pleased with you. I cannot be more happy about you. I mean, this is is a revolutionary truth. No other religion says that. No other political ideology offers you that. Even your parents can barely say those words sometimes. But God the Father, seeing you in Christ, this is what he tells you. Because Jesus took your sins. Now you take all the love that the Father has for His Son. And as you come out of the baptism of conversion, as you come out of that transformation, the Holy Spirit comes on you, and God speaks over you, and God says, you are my beloved child, and I am well pleased with you because of Christ. And because of that, because Jesus has replaced his righteousness with your sin, now you can replace your sin with his righteousness. And now you can replace your slavery to sin with your slavery to Christ. Now you can replace your joy in sin with your joy in Christ. And now you can do what God tells you to do. You can do that now because of the Holy Spirit working in you and God seeing you as Christ himself because of what Jesus has done for you do you believe in Jesus? That's the only question that matters. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you walked the way John has prepared for Jesus? The way of repentance, the way of faith, and the way of joy and love of God now spoken over you and poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. I so hope that it's true of you today that when I say that you smile and I can see some of your faces smile under the masks because it's true because it's you that's what God has done for you it makes you happy just to think about it but if it's not true of you today this morning I, I plead with you I don't know what I can say I don't know how to communicate this in a better way but go to him, go to Jesus See Him as He is. Repent of your self-righteousness or unrighteousness, whatever brokenness you have in your life, whatever wholeness you think you have in your life. Leave it behind. Level it. Level the road to Jesus. Go to Him and embrace Him because He does forgive you and He does love you and He took your sin and He drowned it and He killed it. And now God believes and God says that you are His beloved child and He is well-pleased with you. Do you believe that? Do you believe in Jesus?